that are spoken from, one stood out on this topic above all the others. Of course, my mind went straight away to the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, Jesus' template for the disciples' prayer. But I also wondered about 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. That's a bit of a doozy, isn't it? Or what about that little gem in Philippians 4? Don't be anxious about anything, but in all things, pray and petition God with thankfulness and the God of peace, etc., etc. Well, that was good. Uh, then there was the Apostles' Prayer for Boldness in um, Acts chapter 4. And it could, could have gone there. What about one of those quirky and extreme examples of prayer from the Old Testament? How about Abraham taking his life in his hands and bargaining with God over the cities of the plain, Genesis 18? What about Elijah's outrageous prayer for fire to come down from heaven uh, on his sacrifice as he confronted the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18? Any of those would have been fantastic. But among all the competing claims for our attention this morning, I think we're particularly aware, all of us just now, what's going on in the world. We might call it famines and earthquakes, wars and rumors of wars. Sound familiar? So the passage I've chosen is the famous If My People message from 2 Chronicles chapter 7. If you have a Bible with you, you might want to turn there right away. The context for chapter 7 of 2 Chronicles is the completion of King Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. King David had not been allowed to build it because he was a man of war, but his son Solomon were qualified because he was a man of peace. And for what it's worth, I believe God still seeks men and women of peace to build his dwelling place. The preceding chapter consists mostly of Solomon's dedication prayer, for the temple. And overwhelmingly, this consists of a, a series of uh, prayers for the prayers that will be said in that place. Ten verses in all, including verse 32, which extraordinarily encompasses the prayers of Gentiles, all refer to the future prayers made in or towards the temple. And would God please answer them? And in chapter 7, verse 1, God responds extremely clearly and extremely publicly. But later, in private, he also has a word with Solomon, clarifying his intentions. And that's what's going on in this passage. Let's read together from verse 1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests couldn't enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. In verses 4 to 11, there's this massive series of sacrifices, a huge party for the people. And uh, we pick it up again in verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land and send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face 
and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all I've commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne, as I covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. And we're going to finish our study on that positive note, but if we were to read on, we'd see that if Israel falls into idol worship, they will lose their inheritance And this great temple will lie in ruins as a warning for future generations. If you've ever seen Jewish people praying at the Wailing Wall, which is all the remains of the once great temple, you'll see how seriously Jewish people take this promise of God to Solomon. As they pray, with their faces right up against the wall, they really are positioning their bodies as much as they can, turned away from their wicked way, and towards what's left of the temple. Today I'd like us us to ask ourselves three questions about this passage. One, what's going on here? Two, what does God promise about prayer? And three, how does this apply to us now that the temple is long gone? Question one, what's going on here? What's going on here? That takes me back to my police days. Verse (laughs) one... Verse 1 reads as if God is almost impatient for Solomon to finish his lengthy prayer so he can get on and answer it. Because the moment Solomon stops speaking, something really astounding happens. This wise king has invited God merely to take notice of the prayers that are said in this place. After all, as he asked in chapter 6, verse 18, but will God indeed dwell with men on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, much less this house which I have built. Yet even as he finishes speaking his prayer, it looks as if God actually moves in. Fire from heaven consumes the sacrifices, and something called the glory of the Lord fills up the temple so that the priests can't even go in. I've got to offer a little footnote here. If you're familiar with Two Chronicles, or if you've been trained in worship by Jesse Dooley, you'll probably know that back in chapter 5, the glory of the Lord had already filled the temple in answer to the sung worship at the dedication. So since I don't have any Hebrew, sorry, it wasn't clear to me whether this filling in in chapter 7 is a separate event or whether it was just a continuance of the one that happened in chapter 5. And my commentaries weren't much help either. Just one of them committed in a rather half-hearted and unconvincing way to this being a separate and larger event than that of chapter 5. So that led me to look at other occasions where fire from heaven devoured sacrifices and God's glory fell in the form of a cloud. What did it mean, I asked myself. Now, from those passages, it became clear that it doesn't really matter whether this was a separate event or just a continuance of the glorious presence of God. Either way, the cloud and the fire are just the visible signs of God's presence and his approval, rather than any indication that he somehow physically moved house 
from heaven to earth. The point that the chronicler is making is that both the fire and the glory coincided at this one point in history. And the meaning can't have been lost on any observant Jew, because when Moses met God on Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, a thick cloud descended and the whole mountaintop was on fire and God spoke to Moses in the thunder. In fact, it was a pillar of cloud and fire that led the Israelites throughout the Exodus. And when the tabernacle, which was their kind of portable temple when they were in their journeys through the desert, was completed in Exodus 40, we read, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle so that Moses couldn't go in. And later, when Aaron was consecrated as Israel's first high priest in Leviticus 9, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. Gideon's and David's sacrifices in Judges 6 and 1 Chronicles 21 were both consumed by divine fire as a sign of God's approval. And finally, we have Ezekiel's visions of God by the waters of Babylon, Ezekiel 1 verse 4. Listen to this description. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and a fire flashing forth continually. God's presence and approval in the Old Testament is signified by fire, or a glorious cloud, or both. So when these signs follow Solomon's prayer, we can only draw one conclusion. God is saying a resounding yes. If you are here for Tessa's excellent talk on the transfiguration of Jesus, I hope this talk of the glory of God being like a cloud is ringing a loud and persistent bell in your memory. For there also, on a hilltop, God's voice speaks to Peter and John out of the cloud. And if I may be allowed a relevant digression. I think the Lord spoke to me during my struggle with this question, of was it a new event or was it continuous? When we hit a difficult passage in the Bible, it can be all too easy to just give up. And if we're not careful, the experience makes us think less of Scripture from that point on because we can't explain it. But what I felt the Lord say to me as I was working out this problem, which took me a while, duh, was, was simply this. When the Bible is hard to understand, the answer is not less Bible, it's more Bible. Just leave that thought with you. Question two, what is it that God really promises about prayer? Following several days of sacrifice and feasting, we come to verse 12, where God affirms and explains to Solomon the promise he seemed to be making through the cloud and fire. He mentions the temple specifically in verses 12, and in 15 and 16, but I can't help noticing that in, in verses 13 and 14, it's all very general. It's all completely open-ended. It's non-place specific. I know you'd be disappointed if I didn't uh, quote something out of popular song. So here it goes. Don Henley, in his excellent album, Cass County, has one song he calls Praying for rain. In it, he says this, I ain't no wise man, but I ain't no fool. I believe that Mother Nature is taking us to school. Maybe we just took too much and put too little back. 
It isn't knowledge. It's humility we lack. I'm praying for rain. I'm praying for rain. Lord, I ain't never asked for much, and I don't mean to complain, but I'm praying for rain. Now, this prayer of his is uncannily in tune with 2 Chronicles 7. In particular, the reference to humanity's lacking humility and the generally humble tone of the chorus is precisely the sentiment of verses 13 and 14. I say, may Don's prayer be answered where he is experiencing drought, and may some of the unfortunate amount of rain that's falling on us be diverted to him. In Palestine to this day, drought is much more of a problem than persistent rain. So that, rather than floods, is what God mentions to Solomon. But our own issues are different with our weather. I'm sure they're still included in the promise as well. But the thing I really want us to notice is the issue of humility. Many of you will remember Jeremy Rios and his excellent preaching in this church. In his book, Ordinary Prayer, which I thoroughly recommend, you can come get the ISBN off me later, he majors on the necessity of humility in prayer. He argues that it's precisely our sense of need, our knowledge that we can't manage on our own, that drives us to our knees. That is why, he says, in the Beatitudes, it's the poor in spirit, it's the mourners, the meek, those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, who are blessed in the kingdom of God. So Jeremy advises us to approach the task of prayer in an attitude that acknowledges the greatness of God and the depth of our need. Need, he suggests, is actually a blessed state because it allows us access to God in prayer. And for him, the main kind of prayer we should engage in is always petition, asking God for stuff. As he points out, every part of the Lord's Prayer is actually a request for God to do something. Well, I'm going to stop quoting Jeremy now, but I hope the point is well made that the Christian's response to need must always be to pray. And our prayer should always spring from a sense of need. Now, it's been well said by C.S. Lewis, among others, that prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. That would be reason enough to pray if it made me more receptive to God's kingdom on earth. As God once said to John Wimber when he was experiencing uh, unanswered prayer, said, well, John, a problem's not on my end. But I want us to notice the cause and effect in verse 14, because it speaks not just of some nebulous spiritual change in the person praying. It speaks of the concrete, scientifically verifiable healing of the land. Yet the promise is one of a process towards an end, not just an isolated event, an intervention by God, bang, and it's done. Because his care is for his people, because ever since Adam's covenant uh, back in the garden, it is humanity that's in charge of the planet, and because God seeks a lasting change, not one that will undo the second his back is turned, there has to be a change in us before there will be a change in our circumstances. It may be that some of our prayers go unanswered because we don't understand that. If we walk together through verse 14, we soon discern the process. If my people who are called by my... Can we have that up on... Oh, we've got it already. Well done. Well done. If we... 
if we walk through chapter 14, we discern the process. If my people who are called by my name, that's undoubtedly Israel, but it certainly embraces us Christians too, since we bear the name Christians. If they humble themselves and pray, we have to acknowledge our need of God's help. As Proverbs 9 verse 10 teaches us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And seek my face. We have to seek the face of God, where we can read his expression and respond accordingly. This means something much more relational than merely seeking his hand, which would be expecting blessings without ever making eye contact with the living God. And turn from their wicked ways. That's not necessarily referring to any specific immorality. For ancient Israel, the wicked way normally involved the very obvious worship of false gods. But as you'll know, it's the love of money that Jesus points to as the principal idolatry of his own day. And we can't be in much doubt that it remains so to this day in Western society. The root, though, of both idolatries, both the idol worship and the mammon worship, um, the root is self-sufficiency. It's trying to obtain a blessing by something we can do. Either that mechanical sacrifice to a pagan deity, uh, quid pro quo, I give this, he gives that. Or I just get that better job and all my needs are answered. We have to seek God's face and not his hand. If we do this, God says, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel that God isn't hearing my prayers. The idea is ridiculous that he isn't, but the implication of this verse is that perhaps sometimes he really isn't. If our approach is correct, he will hear us all right. If not, then the promise can't be relied upon. And I also believe there's a direct connection between forgiving their sin and healing their land. We look with horror at the pollution of the world, and we live with its consequences. But as Jeremiah 3 clearly clearly states, it is idolatry that pollutes the land. Perhaps both sides in the current Gaza conflict, because it is in both their scriptures, would do well to remember also Numbers 35, which states equally clearly that the shedding of innocent blood also pollutes the land. We can't be responsible for how all the Christians and Jews in the world um, pray, but we can individually and as a church approach God in the way 2 Chronicles 7.14 says. As with climate change and pollution, we can't change the whole world, but we can change our own small corner of it. And that brings me, not before time you might think, to question three. Where can we access this promise now that the temple is gone? Well, it does seem that God's being quite deliberate in the open framing of the promise in verse 14, but it still sits all alone among a huge context that's all about the temple. So what if this precious verse 2 is best seen as a temple promise? Well, even so, fear not, all is not lost. 
In Matthew 12, verse 6, the Pharisees had criticized Jesus for breaching the Sabbath. Do you remember? He's walking through the cornfield and the disciples just rubbing their ears of corn and eating it. Oh, you breached the Sabbath. You rubbed some corn with your fingers. You know. um, and and but Jesus' response is that he says, don't you know that the priests break the Sabbath every single week when they go about their duties um, in, in the temple? And then he says this, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. In John 2, 19 to 22, Jesus' opponents asked for a sign of authority when he cleansed the temple, kicked out all the money changers. His response? Well, I'll, I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple in three days, and in three days I'll raise it up. Dot, dot, dot. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And we might also re recall the description of Jesus in his introduction uh, in John 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we've already mentioned the transfiguration. In the context of all the uh, Old Testament passages that I just mentioned, where is it that the glory of God resides? Not for nothing do theologians say that Jesus has replaced the temple. Where was the place of sacrifice? Where was the mercy seat of God? Where did people go for forgiveness of sins? Where could humanity meet with God? Where in these verses could they be sure that their prayers would be answered? And in whose name do we now pray? Jesus has entirely replaced the temple for us so that we Christians can still, still rely on verse 14, just like the Jews of old. At the end of all things in Revelation 21, 22, we read of the eternal city of God. I saw no temple there. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the only temple. In a spiritual sense, we come to Jesus as our temple every time that we pray in his name. But better yet, we can also physically encounter and embody that temple in the body of Christ. It's a reference to uh, 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul speaks in general terms about how the different parts of a body all work together. But then he says this, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Peter speaks the same kind of thing in a different image in 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's all temple once again. Now, you'll find similar ideas throughout the New Testament, and overwhelmingly they are plural in form. In the Old English of the King James Version, it's, it's ye are, not thou art, the plural form of you. Um, for example, we often think, uh, my body's a temple, aha, temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, no, it's, it's ye are a temple. You, plural, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Anyway, 
that's one good reason to dip into the King James Version from time to time. Uh, but the language is pretty cool too. Along with the Shakespeare and uh, the Royal Navy's language in the Age of Sail, it's one of the three primary sources, I think, of English idiom. But I digress. Some would say that should be on my tombstone. <laughs> Perhaps, uh, along as Hannah once suggested, with the single word followed by a question mark. Pub? <laughs> yes, I digress. But the point is that it's not enough to pray on our own, important as that is. If we want to be sure of accessing God's temple promises, we need to come together as his temple to pray. And here's Jim to tell us how we can do that in the very near future. You accept I, accept I need two hands to use a microphone. Sorry, let's just check you're awake. I say, actually, I say check you're awake. Good grief, I'm coming back for this again on the podcast. There's so much in this morning. Thank you, Toby. Um, very briefly from me, and I know we don't do this normally, but I have a couple of announcement-y type things I want to share in the context of what Toby said. So uh, that's why we're doing sharing this now rather than beforehand. You might have spotted, if you've been around Kingdom Vineyard for a while, um, we like to, uh, to host an event for prayer, like a monthly prayer. Um, we have been doing these for a long, long time, and we paused them over the summer. Um, it just wasn't really working. The rhythm of monthly prayer when we were holding it wasn't serving the church community. So we've been thinking, right, what will? What would be a good way for us as Kingdom Vineyard to put this into practice as a church family? So... Uh, as well as monthly prayer, you might have, if you've been around uh, the church for a while, uh, come to one of our day of prayer events or 12-hour prayer. Um, we've loved these. They've been really wonderful and powerful times of meeting with God. Um, people have written down things they've heard in those moments, in those rooms. We've been using those uh, to say, okay, this is what the church is hearing. And so many of those little prophetic notes from those days of prayer have then fed into um, and agreed with stuff we're hearing from elsewhere and helped us to say, okay, the Lord seems to be taking us this way. So really useful to hear from the Lord, but also really lovely. So we thought, they're good. Let's do some of those. So we are going to hold a week of prayer. Well, I'll come back to it. A week of prayer, the 13th to the 19th of November. I wonder if there's even a slide for that, uh, if our lovely visuals team can pop one of those up behind me. A week of prayer where we will have a different item that we'd like to invite the church to pray for each day. And at the end of those, the last two days of that week will be 12-hour days of prayer, uh, which we'd love for you to come to. I paused because fasting, I want to mention. Um, it's a, prayer, a week of prayer and fasting. Just really quickly, uh, if you feel led to fast, if uh, you think that that would be a good way of engaging with the Lord that week, please do. If there is any sensible reason why fasting food is not a good idea for you, just be really sensible, please, friends. Um, don't go doing anything that your doctor would disapprove of. Uh, and of course, as we've said in previous events, for some of us, fasting something like uh, streaming services or social media, um, or maybe it's coffee or maybe it's alcohol or whatever the thing might be, um, is also an absolutely valid and good way of dedicating ourselves physically through our rhythms to the Lord. So prayer and fasting with the asterisk of be safe, friends. Okay, how is our week of prayer in November going to work? Um, firstly, I recommend 
if you want to get involved in this, that you follow Kingdom Vineyard on, oh, social media. Right, well, we'll work out another way of communicating, okay? Uh, for those of you who are sensibly giving up Instagram or Facebook or what have you. Um, but we will have a different focus for each of the days of the week of prayer. And we would love it if, as a church, um, we're praying along with these. We'll supply some suggested prayer points to get us going each day. Um, Monday will be prayer for the world uh, and all the events. I mean, as Toby's alluded to, there's a lot to pray for around the world at the moment. Um, prayer for things in the United Kingdom on Tuesday. Uh, Wednesday, and we think this is an important thing, we can come to the Lord with our shopping list or with our request, and this is good, but also approaching him with thanksgiving is, is crucial. So we're giving a whole day to coming to the Lord with thanksgiving in prayer on the Wednesday. Um, Thursday, we'll give you more information about this as it comes, but we wanted to give a couple of days to the work that we're doing here in Kingdom Vineyard. So on Thursday, for example, um, we might focus on our KV kids, focus on KV youth, and focus on our students in the congregation. Um, that's Thursday, Friday, other things that Kingdom Vineyard tries to do, like serving our local area, reaching our local area with, uh, with Jesus and for Jesus, um, things like our worship and tech ministries, uh, stuff like it's nice to have a venue, this is a lovely loan of a venue, but you know, some security of it, stuff that, that will help us be a church that serves the community on Friday. Um, Saturday, we would love to pray for the work of Storehouse and for the Northeast Five Community Hub and the work that happens at the St. David Center. And Sunday, we'll close our week of prayer by saying, your kingdom come, Lord, in whatever shape he wants to, but more of you, Jesus, will be the focus that day. And of course, it's church that day, so we can pray together here. That'd be nice. We will communicate these prayer points um, definitely via social media for those who aren't giving that up, but some other clever way for those who are as well. Um, the last two, or the Friday and Saturday the, of those days, as I've just said, we want to have 12-hour days of prayer on those days. And so we're going to set up some space at the St. David Center in one of the rooms that we use there. Um, and that will have different areas of the room to help you pray in different ways. So maybe there'll be a reflective space. Um, we quite often have some creative and arty spaces. Those, those are lovely. Um, the teams have set those up in the past have done so, such a wonderful job. I'm confident that'll be a really lovely space to pray in. We would love to know who's coming though. And we would love to kind of space people out because if everyone turns up at 9 a.m., and then no one for the rest of the day. That wasn't the best use of the room. So, Caitlin, who's going to stand up and smile. She loves it when I do that with no warning. Isn't she nice? What a nice smile. Hello. Oh, oh Caitlin gets waves. Okay, Caitlin will be roaming the church later with this iPad saying, would you like to sign up and pick a slot for the, the day of prayer or the two days of prayer? This is not to try and arm twist you into it, but it is so we've got an idea of who might be coming when. So, Go and find Caitlin and say, I'm desperate to pray in your prayer room and book your slot early. Um, we'll have two wee focuses. We're going to do a special KV youth focus in that prayer room uh, on the Friday evening. So the rest of you can't go. It's KV youth only. And there'll be um, some dedicated time for families as well with small children so that they've got use of the space. Um, lovely. Do I want to say anything else? Yes, that's the, the week of prayer we're going to be launching in November. Um, we'll be doing some more of these uh, every few months as well. We think this will be a good thing, and we just think this will be a great way to put into practice what Toby's been sharing this morning. Final thought, separately, on the 26th of November, we're going to be launching a, a prayer and worship night. This will be at, down at the St. David Center, where our offices are. Um, it'll start at 7 p.m., so obviously you'll all be there at 6.45. And the plan is that we're going to hold one of these every second month. Um, this space is going to be a regular curated space of prayer 
that is intercessory prayer, prayer asking the Lord to move in situations, more so than prayer ministry for each other, which is a church we're really good at, um, but I want us to make space for Lord, would you come and move in this situation over here type prayer. So prayer and worship, I'm really excited about these. Um, a couple of, every couple of months down at the St. David Center, we'll tell you more about it, but here you are, here's some practical ways to put into practice Toby's really good message. Thanks so much, Governor. Yes, thank you, Jim. Why don't you stand and we'll do some prayer ministry right now. <clears throat> Just before we do, let me, let me remind you how our passage closed. Now, says the Lord, my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Lord, we offer ourselves as, uh, as such a temple to you. And Solomon asks the question, shall the almighty God come and dwell with man? And we know that in Jesus the answer is yes. So would you come now by your Holy Spirit and fill this your temple with your fire to accept the things we offer you now in prayer. and your glory to put us in our place. Would you come with your healing power, Father? Would you speak to hearts, speak to minds, and make us whole? The only leading I think I've, I've got, I mean, uh, I think it'd be good to pray for people who know their prayer life is insufficient at the moment. I think it would be good to uh, pray for some physical healing in particular. I woke up this morning with what it feels like a, a torn right calf. Uh, if you've got a torn right calf, sometimes when I get these things, I've got, the, I've got it the wrong way around. It's like, as you look at me, maybe it's your left, not your right. But a, um, an injury to the calf muscle. Um, then I would like to pray for you. And, um, but really, anything else? Anything else that the Lord's placing on your hearts? I think he's going to do some good stuff this morning. Why don't you come as soon as you're ready?